Well, hello, all you vivacious Venus flytraps. Welcome to another episode of A Little Greener, a podcast all about conservation, nature, and sustainability. I am one of your hosts, Casey, and I am joined by the wonderful Sarah. Sarah, how are you? Are you feeling vivacious today? I cannot honestly say that I'm feeling vivacious, but that's okay. We'll maybe we'll work our way yeah. up to that by the end of the episode. But I'm you know, I'm okay. How are you doing this lovely week? I am doing pretty well. I am in crunch time for wedding planning. Mm-hmm. And so that's been a little overwhelming. But other than that, really can't complain, truly. So well, we have good news to share related to last week's episode. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know if you wanted to yeah. get honors. The Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 passed through the House of Representatives, um, which means it's going to get signed into law. Yay! I'm like so thrilled about it. I have seen so many other people who do what we do, but probably even on much bigger, bigger platforms than us, be also very excited and optimistic. I saw that Hank Green did a video, but I haven't watched it yet. Oh, you should watch it and then feel bad about what I did last week. But it's so good. No, Casey. Oh my God. Oh no. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, he broke down some things, but he also talked to like the head of the EPA and some other people who helped write the bill. So so um, if you want an even deeper primer with a nice breakdown and visuals, visit Vlogbrothers on YouTube and look at Hank's climate video because it is incredible, but it's nice to see everybody happy. Yeah. It's very exciting. Yeah, I'm excited to watch what he has to say, but I also loved what you had to say. He has more money <laughs> and time than we do. And experience, <laughs> and for experience sure. Yeah. been doing this for longer. But you helped me out a lot. And and thanks to those of you who listened, we, we tried to get that one out on Thursday to you last week. And hopefully that helped you understand what was happening with yeah. this bill a, a little more. And Casey and I are excited that it has gone through and I'm excited to see the rollout and how things shape up in the future. So that was fun. We are shifting gears this week. We're talking about carnivorous plants for no reason other than I saw a really cool picture on Instagram a couple of weeks back and was like, huh, carnivorous plants. That would be a fun podcast episode. And then Casey and I were chatting and it turned out Casey's fiance had also suggested carnivorous plants as an episode topic. So I was like, well, I got to do it now. So I was literally are. like, yeah, what am I, you know, if the climate bill gets mixed, which is very possible, what would I do it instead on? And she was like carnivorous plants. And then I did the climate episode and you're like, I'm thinking about doing carnivorous plants. Like <laughs> your brains are on the same wavelength. So I'm excited. We're doing it. It was meant to be. Casey, originally I had a much more morbid <laughs> starting question for this episode, but I, I'm not going to go there. I'm going to keep it nice and simple. I'm just curious to know, did you growing up, because I this was, I feel like a very popular common thing, at least in the United States. I have no idea if this is true elsewhere or not, to have a Venus flytrap. I'm curious for you, did you have a Venus flytrap as a kid? Do you all sell any carnivorous plants at your garden center now? Great question. I did not have a Venus flytrap as a kid in my memory. If we did, it 
lived so shortly mm. that it was inconsequential. I do remember we would go to Longwood Gardens, which is a big botanical gardens nearby, and they had a carnivorous plant exhibit. And I remember learning that you're not supposed to stick your finger in the <laughs> Venus flytraps. Yes, we'll talk. Um, about we'll talk about that. But we do sell <laughs> carnivorous plants at the garden center, so cool. I do actually have some decent experience, and it's almost always, but not always, a kid who is going with their parents to pick up a Venus flytrap yeah. at the store. We do just have some adults who are like, this is super cool. And so we do those. And then we also have sold pitcher plants as well. I think we once had a planter that had those both and sundews, just like making the trifecta out nice. of there. So, um, so yes, I do have some experience, although not as a kid. <laughs> That's very cool. I'll be excited to to get your input on on some of these as we go through them. Murray, hi. <laughs> did you have a Venus flytrap as a child? I did. I think that perhaps it was my brother's. I just have a, a fleeting memory of basically trying to feed this Venus flytrap some insects so that we could watch it. And I think what you were saying about having kids come into the store to look for these plants, I mean, that's kind of, I will say, perhaps generally and perhaps unfairly, kids maybe aren't super excited about plants a lot of times. And so carnivorous plants are maybe a way in to get them excited, which I think is is why it is a, a more common thing for, for kids to have those Venus flytraps. And I do remember being really fascinated by the Venus flytrap. It didn't necessarily translate into a love of plants for me at the time, but learning about them more and learning about them as an adult, once again, I have just found my fascination for them ever growing. So we're just going to chat about carnivorous plants, how they work, and a few different kinds this evening. So stick around for that. All right, welcome everyone to our discussion on carnivorous plants. I, like I said, was not super into plants growing up. I think largely as a kid, I just sort of thought of plants as as not me. I don't think I really saw them as living things. I would put plants as in like the same category as the rocks, if that makes sure. sense, right? Yeah, I think this is really interesting now that you've brought it up because my brain has now been going. The carnivorous plants, like the Venus flytraps, are the only plants we sell that have tags that have like little anthropomorphic cartoon mm-hmm. characters of a Venus flytrap with like little eyeballs or a little house of horrors sort of situation. Little house of the, horrors, love yeah, it. Yeah, all the other like ad gimmicks for plants, I feel like are food. Right. Like there's there's a brand sort of goes around like butterfly candy. That's a marketing gimmick for some nectar plants for mm-hmm. butterflies. But they're really instead of being like the main character, they are very yeah. much like this is a resource for a utilitarian. Other- yes. Sort of, yeah. Mm -hmm. So that is a really interesting way that we frame them as like a character in their own story instead of some object to be eaten by something that's more interesting. So hmm, interesting. It is interesting. And I think it is because this idea of of 
carnivory is that word of of having to ingest something else is not it's an active yeah and we don't associate that with being something that a plant does so i but through the course of my life i feel like i've had to change my view of plants i think once i started to get older there was maybe a stage where i sort of just thought plants were boring and then it moved on to the stage where i found plants to be overwhelming similar to you know fish or insects things like that that I find fascinating but I'm like I just can't like there's just too much there's too many I can't take it all in I sort of feel that way about plants but focusing in on bits and pieces of of plants I just the more amazing they've become and I've sort of had to change my how I define a plant learning about how plants communicate with each other learning about how the different mechanisms that plants have to defend themselves. You know, we see them as such passive things, but they are active things. And this, I'm saying it again, carnivory is a very active thing uh, that just sort of blows your mind that a plant would do. So hopefully this will maybe serve to, to get some of you all more interested in plants too. So let's start with why they do this, what would make a plant be carnivorous? Why isn't this something that more plants do? Why do these plants do it at all? So Casey, with all of your garden center knowledge, can you tell us a little bit about what plants need to survive? So I'm going to frame this in a conversation I had yesterday with someone who wanted a plant for their bathroom and they wanted one that you know, this is my bathroom. We have all sorts of indoor plants. That's a little bit of where my specialty has been going at the store. And she wanted a plant that would survive in no light. Mm -hmm. Um, She first framed it as a little light. And I was like, okay, I've got certain plants Mm -hmm. who can do little light. As I was going down sort of that path, she was like, well, it actually has no light other than maybe the fluorescent lights. And I was like, okay, well, we have to start on a basic principle then. And I don't like, I'm trying to come from an education standpoint rather than like a, you know, condescending standpoint, trying to use that, that educator in me like, well, you know, these are living things. So again, people framing these things as objects, there are plastic replacements for them and plants need light to photosynthesize. That Mm -hmm. is how they get their energy. So if you're putting a plant in a space that has no light, some of them can do okay with the fluorescent light, but you might just be choosing something that dies more slowly than something else. (laughs) And so that's their main requirement are going to be light and water. And that's like the biggest things that plants need. Yes, absolutely. So you mentioned the photosynthesis, that's how they get their energy. You can think way, way back to learning that equation, probably at some point in school that you have your energy, which comes from light. So your light energy, we talked about light and wavelengths and all that fun stuff. You get their carbon dioxide from the air and they need water and they're going to convert that into sugars, glucose, primarily oxygen, and they'll give off a little bit of water as well. So that sugar, the glucose that is produced during that photosynthetic process produces energy for the plant. So you're thinking if carnivorous plants can carry out photosynthesis, why do they eat bugs or whatever else they eat? 
that glucose is not the only thing that the plant needs. Plants also need other nutrients, which typically they're going to get from the soil. So they're going to take up primarily nitrogen and phosphorus are the nutrients that we're talking about here. That They're going to pick those up with their root system. Water is important for that as well. Water is going to help transport those nutrients throughout the plant. And and like I feel like also adding in, we fertilize yes. you know, potted plants. That's how you mm-hmm. would add that to the soil. But in nature, a lot of these plants live alongside other plants. And as that decaying matter goes into the soil, that's where those nutrients are coming up. Right. And we've probably talked about that just a little bit in some of our maybe our water cycle episode because that's one of the issues with fertilizer when Mm. you talk about runoff it's that nitrogen and phosphorus so applying too much fertilizer can lead to other environmental issues and all of that stuff but that's nutrients are an important part of our ecosystem for sure exactly so that's that's why fertilizer has those things in it it is important for those plants carnivorous plants tend to grow in habitats that are poor in nutrients. So things like bogs, swamps, watery areas, sandy areas, rocky areas, where they are not going to be able to absorb those nutrients that they need. So eating that meat, if you will, typically it's going to be insects, but not always. Uh, It's going to provide those nutrients that they're not getting from the soil. So It's kind of fascinating reading about this. Scientists are obviously still learning a little bit about how all of this came about, but they think that it evolved multiple times separately in different groups of unrelated plants, which is pretty fascinating in and of itself. Yeah, if you're taking a look, because we'll talk about the different types, you might be like, how would one of these through evolution become the other? And they didn't. They came from completely separate groups. It evolved separately several times as an adaptation for these sorts of conditions. So life is amazing. Yeah. And I think I I realized I I didn't put it down here, but I want to say that there's like 20 separate groups of carnivorous plants. I can't remember for sure. Don't quote me on that, but potentially as more as more than 800 species that have been identified. Carnivorous plants are found all around the world on every continent except Antarctica. Shout out to my my birth state of North Carolina, who in the United States, we have 66 species of carnivorous plants. 36 of those 66 species of carnivorous plants found in North Carolina. Way to go. It's super cool when you're looking at houseplants, a lot of times you're looking at things that are from around the world. And I think we forget that the United States has some really amazing, unique wildlife Yeah, living out in the areas. And yeah, like Venus flytraps are native to North Carolina. North Carolina. And it's crazy. a whole, whole bit of South Carolina. But yeah. yeah, so let's talk about those Venus flytraps. Again, here, I'd be curious to know around the world what... Ha- if this is true in other places. But for us here in the United States, I would say the Venus flytrap is the carnivorous plant that people know. This is the one that people are going to recognize. Well, again, it has like a mouth that Mm -hmm. you can identify versus the other ones. Like this one moves. 
Yep. And that's like, it makes it so much more of an active participant in its own life and like acquisition of nutrients. Yeah. It's it, crazy. It makes it easier to anthropomorphize yeah. basically. And, and to relate to the way that this Venus flytrap works is basically analogous to our human digestive system. We understand how it works, which we'll talk about. So let's start with that Venus flytrap. It is, like we said, found only in North and South Carolina. I think there's 13 counties in North Carolina and just one county in South Carolina where this is found in the wild. You're probably familiar with it. It does, like Casey was saying, it basically has a mouth. It has these, these are specialized leaves and it basically works like a snap trap. So it has these two sides with little projections around the edge of each each half, each side of this little mouth. So Casey and I are both sitting here holding our hands <laughs> up with our fingers sticking out uh, to kind yeah. of emulate what this Venus flytrap looks like. Now, when I first learned about Venus flytraps and what they did, I thought that those little projections on the outside were what bugs, how bugs would kind of trigger the trap. That's actually not true. Right. But that is how the trap works. So there are trigger hairs. They're not the little projections on the edge. I have a picture. I don't know that the picture that I have will be shareable to you all, but we'll try to find a different one or an article that we can link to that will show you these little trigger hairs. But actually on the flat surface, the inside surface of each half of this trap, there are three to four little trigger hairs that are scattered. And so some unsuspecting insect that's going to come along and land on these leaves if they touch or trigger those hairs two times it has to be two times within 20 seconds that's going to send the electrical signal that's going to sort of pass this threshold that that plant knows okay i'm gonna or doesn't know but that is going to cause that plant to snap that that leaf shut so why two triggers that's going to hopefully help cut down on some false alarms for that plant. So if something blows by and brushes one of those trigger hairs or a raindrop falls right on one of those trigger hairs, hopefully another one's not going to do it within that uh, 20 second time period. But basically triggering the hair sends an electrical signal and those two triggers within a certain time frame is what signals that trap to snap. So after that, basically, it'll close, and then over the space of typically a couple of hours, it'll actually close and seal completely. And so that trap goes from being more like what you would think of a mouth snapping shut to being a stomach. And our poor little bug friend uh, is just going to be trapped inside there. And that plant, much like our digestive system has glands that's going to release enzymes to help us digest our food. That plant is going to release enzymes that are going to liquefy that bug. And then just like nutrients get absorbed in our intestines, those nutrients are going to get absorbed into the tissues of that plant inside that snap trap. Can you imagine what being the bug? Being the bug, <laughs> yes. I'd rather not. I know it's pretty, it's pretty dark. So that is more the initial question that I was going to ask you. 
it, I, I mean, this is like horror movie. These yeah. all of these plants that what we're going to talk about, I could not help as I was reading through them. What a terrible way to go. Yeah, I think Every maybe one of these would be like, I think some of the ones we're going to cover later feel more like a translated to a horror movie yeah. to me of like where you could see where that would be. Mm-hmm. Where it felt like there maybe is more knowledge going on yeah. in the insects brain. This one feels like, ah, oh, I'm in like dark now. That's confusing. And then yeah. you're kind of dead. So the other ones you're like, uh oh. <laughs> yeah. I, well, you would hope that the insect would not be aware of things for long after yeah, this, but true. it does take days. It yeah. takes several days for the, the insect to be digested totally. Ho- hopefully, not days for the insect to. No, yeah. Anyway, um, moving on from that, uh, there are some other really interesting things about this. We talk about plants, of course, a lot of plants using insects to help pollinate, to help new plants to propagate. Venus flytraps do produce flowers as well, but they'll produce flowers that are on a taller stalk. So these traps, these these sort of specialized leaves, are going to be closer to the ground and shorter so they'll have their flowers up higher they don't quote unquote want their pollinators to get stuck in these traps so they're trying to protect those flying pollinators more like whereas they're actually even though they're called fly traps probably going to be more likely to catch things like ants and spiders in these traps whereas those pollinators are going to be able to go up high to the flowers and do their job to help pollinate so I mentioned that these plants are found only in the Carolinas. They're also classified as vulnerable by the IUCN. So uh, we'll we'll talk about that a little bit more at the end. But I did want to mention it up front, too, because I think this is another thing that gets overlooked about plants is that it's not just animals that are endangered. These plants are facing a lot of issues as well. And that's something that we have to be thoughtful about, especially with these plants that are popular as plants. Yeah, I think it's worth remembering that in order for these plants to evolve, they had to live in a very specific type mm-hmm. of habitat, which is inherently self-limiting, like it, it's it's not prolific. So when we start to lose those, it's going to impact these specialized species a lot more intensely than someone who can travel from one area to another. Yeah, now, habitat loss is definitely a big one. This is These are areas that fire is typically important for them as well. So the suppression of natural wildfires, I feel like wildfires are a thing that we now sort of think of as being negative exclusively bad yeah that natural wildfires are actually a really good and critical thing in a lot of habitats so they help keep some plants back so that other plants can grow and thrive so that's just one example of something that's been really detrimental to the venus flytraps all right so venus flytraps are an example of that snap trap uh, an active moving trap. The next one we're going to talk about are uh, a a passive trap. You mentioned them a little bit earlier, Casey, that you sell these as well. We're going to talk about pitcher plants, and this is described as a pitfall trap, but pitcher plant, very self-explanatory. It's the shape of the plant that is going to be the the, the trap in and of itself. They're typically long tube-like 
aka pitcher-shaped plants where the prey is basically going to fall inside and get stuck in this trap. Casey, what kinds of pitcher plants do you sell, if you don't mind my asking? Um, You have the family, maybe genus name, the penthus up there, and that's typically what we'll have. I just visited a greenhouse production area where we source a lot of our plants and they have some really beautiful pitcher plants that they've never produced before for us at least. So I'm hoping to get some of those in and those were Nepenthes species. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. So a a few different groups within this pitcher plant category, the Nepenthes, Saracenia maybe? Am I saying that right? Sure. Saracenia is the type of pitcher plants. Those are native to the United States and I don't think just the United States, but those are the ones that you could find here. And then also Darlingtonia, which there's only one species in that group that is also here in the United States. Are you familiar with that one, Casey? We'll talk no, about it. No, but the, the name uh, sounds like a kid made up a Latin name. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I have no idea where it came from, but uh, so, but I do want to talk about the pitcher plants in general first. So I think I always just thought of this as like, duh, yeah, self-explanatory. It's a big tube-shaped leaf. The bug's going to just go and kind of lose its footing and end up falling inside. There's liquid inside the pitcher plant that is going to typically be that digestive fluid. So they're just, I mean, again, terrifying if you think about it. But it feels very... Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, to me, it feels very much, it, it feels very simple. Like I was having a drain fly issue in my house and man, that it's rough to get rid of them. But the solution that I read about on the internet for them was to put out almost empty bottles of wine. Yeah. So just like leave a little bit the in the vine right now. Are yeah. you really? Yeah. yeah. It does work. Uh, so uh, at least my, my problem is gone. But so that's basically what it is, is these these bugs get attracted to the smell they go inside they go down into the bottom and then they can't get out to me that's and that is basically how a pitcher plant works but there's a little more nuance to it that I thought was really cool to read about too but go ahead Casey what were you gonna say I was gonna say this is one that I can definitely see a horror film situation (laughs) yeah where you like slide in and like recognize that there's no way there's no way you're gonna get out and yeah, it's yeah. It, no, it feels like there's much more um, acknowledgement from the prey species <laughs> that like, oh no, I am going to die. I you, know exactly mm-hmm. what's happening. See, this is why I don't like flying. You got too much time <laughs> to think about it, right? If something goes wrong. Uh, but yeah, no, I agree with you 100%. I, I feel that the exact same way about this one. But and like I was saying, there's a little more sort of specialization around these traps too than I realized. It's not just the insects sort of accidentally falling over the edge. These plants have a, a lot of potential different techniques that they can use or adaptations that they have around the rim of these pitchers so that even though there's no uh, moving parts, they are causing these insects to fall. So I was reading a a study specifically about these Nepenthes species, and it says that they have epicuticular, you're 
to your surface of your skin, basically. So on the surface of this plant, wax crystals on the upper part of the inner pitcher wall. The platelet-shaped crystals project perpendicularly from the surface. As a result, the crystals break off very easily, thus contaminating and disabling the insect's adhesive pads. These plants have crystals in their walls that take away the insect's ability to hold on to the surface. So it's like... Ah! Ah, it feels like, I feel like the show Wipeout, where like you're going along that one wall and you're like trying to make sure you don't grab something that's going to break off at the same time or like punch you or whatever they do there. But like, yeah, that, that sort of got to pick the right one or, and for them, it's just like, nope, the walls are secretly non-adhesive. You silly little ant who can climb vertically. And that's just one of it. So they, they mentioned waxy there as well. So some of them have a, a waxy surface. Some of them I was reading have like downward angled hairs or even sort of just the way that the, uh, the cells, I guess, of the the wall are aligned just in this downward direction, preventing any sort of upward escape. The more that I read about these, and some of them are just slippery too. They have right. have kind of a slippery surface, uh, which is sort of what I originally thought it was at all, was that they just sort of had a, a, a liquidy, slippery surface. But there are so many other possibilities, and that reading it actually did make me feel a little anxious. Like you can put yourself in the bugs position. Whew, it's, it's, it's amazing. Well, it feels like, again, it's not just that they're carnivores. It's that they're predators. Yes. Like there is, yeah. there is an active portion of I mean, this. they don't have brains. No, the but plants, they... So the plants are not thinking or plotting but their very being, yeah, is set up. I mean, They're, they are attracting. I didn't even right. mention that with the Venus flytraps, but they are attracting these bugs as well, aside from all of these methods that they're using to kill them. The color, sometimes we talked about the insects vision. So some of them have those UV signals as well. They produce nectar a lot of times. So the smell is going to be, so they are definitely attracting trapping killing and eating these bugs ah. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, i do also want to mention in this pitcher plant category the darlingtonia this is called the california pitcher plant or sometimes called the cobra lily and casey i stuck a picture of that one in there for you so you can see sort of where the cobra lily comes from so cool with this kind of hooded shape and then it has a sort of forked leaf downward yeah facing leaf that could be a a forked tongue or perhaps the fangs of of a snake so this is found in california uh interestingly so it has fluid in the bottom of the pitcher as well but i i guess it uses bacteria instead of digestive enzymes unlike most of of the other pitcher plants so a little bit of a different way to symbiosis uh, yeah uh, and and there are a, a few examples of that too that i was reading about within the carnivorous plant world so pitcher plants in general in addition to all those adaptations that they have around the rim of their pitcher they'll typically have a lid 
which I never really thought about, but that will prevent like rainwater from getting in to dilute the juices, the, the enzymes that they have in their picture. We talked about how they'll, they'll attract the prey. Some of the largest species, in particular, the Nepenthes, Nepenthes, I already am not looking at it. Nep- yeah, sure. Nepenthes. Uh, Scientific names are <laughs> subject to... You know, it's when you only read a word and you never hear it said aloud. But some of the largest species have even caught rodents. So typically we do think of carnivorous plants as as being more insect eating, but whatever's going to fit in their trap, they're going to digest. I do also have to give honorable mention to Nepenthes raja, which is a pitcher plant that apparently gets its nutrients Rather than from bugs, it gets it from tree shrew feces. Good for it. I've also seen bats sometimes yes, nest inside yep. these as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, nature's super cool. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. And so again, wherever they can get those nutrients, that's that's what they're going for here. So whether it's bugs or tree shrew feces, whatever works. All right, moving on from our pitcher plants, we are now going to move on to another one that just seems horrible to me, our adhesive traps. So this is like flypaper, sort of, or those yep. sticky traps, which please don't ever use. Uh, don't don't, use those, don't, please. don't do it. Uh, but this is sundews are going to be the big one in this category. There's more than 100 species in this group. So these plants basically have tentacles if you will really pretty this is what i saw a picture of this was what inspired the episode for me was a sundew trapping a bug and at the end of each of these little tentacles there's like a sticky nectar drop that's gonna attract and then trap the bugs the plants are then gonna sort of curl up around the bug and they're going to secrete those digestive enzymes to digest the prey. Interestingly, Casey, I don't know how much you know about this or not, but I came across it with both the sundews and the Venus flytraps, reading, trying to read a little more in depth about how they actually work, is that the trapping of the insect triggers a release of a hormone called jasminate which is what's actually causing in the sundew's case that plant to curl up this is something that non-carnivorous plants will release in response to like an injury so jasminate is part of a defense response in non-carnivorous plants and so that's something that's been of interest to scientists is how these carnivorous plants maybe have over the years figured out how to use this hormone or this hormone has changed to to help in that carnivorous response kind of yeah it's really fascinating again motion in plants is just not Mm -hmm. something we really expect if you move a plant it's like growing towards the sun always so if you like move them it might change the direction it starts growing to try and soak up more sunlight but that always seems so passive because 
it happens kind of so slowly you can't actually see it but for a lot of these this is not a slow process they're ones that move at the speed that like the human eye can pick up on within a couple minutes instead of like waiting for forever to watch the leaves curl right it's not instantaneous right it's not like they're just whoosh wrapping up but yeah exactly exactly as you said it it would be something that that we could see and watch and it's really yeah it's it's very interesting and then the last category that i want to talk about is the suction trap they all sound terrifying who am i kidding every one that i talk about i'm like no this would definitely be the worst one this Perhaps for me, this one, the suction traps, this is going to be bladder warts that we're going to talk about here. This one and the pitcher plant are the scariest to me because they involve liquid. So obviously the pitcher plant has this digestive juices that you're falling into at the bottom of the pitcher plant. Bladder warts typically, I guess there are some terrestrial species, but generally speaking, these bladder warts are aquatic. And so these little traps, these little bladders are going to be in the water. So they're, these are primarily getting aquatic organisms. And what happens with these is these bladders basically, uh, they're these little pouches and first all of the water is like expelled out. So there's like a vacuum with these pouches so if you imagine like you have a a water bottle like a a plastic water bottle which you shouldn't be using that you've sucked all of (laughs) the the air out of right and then put the lid back on and then you take that lid off and it 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 expands really quickly right so we're going back to the trigger hairs like with the venus flytrap but this one has trigger hairs on kind of a trap door basically so if these little trigger hairs get triggered by an insect that trapdoor is going to open and that vacuum is going to suck that poor little aquatic bug into that bladder where it will be trapped and digested once a trap is triggered it sucks prey in with an acceleration more than 600 times the force of gravity what poor little bug oh no but i mean at least they're in before they know what's happened to them, I guess. And then they're just yeah. trapped in there and they're getting digested. So, but this one and the pitcher plant, because they involve water, like, man, I don't want it. Like, drowning seems terrible to me. So I don't like either of these that have to do with ending up in a watery trap that you can't get out of. Do you know what your description of the the little bladder reminded me of? No. A dog squeak toy where, like, you, like, oh. you compress it yeah. and then as it sucks in that air yeah like it it, ha- it feels like it has to fill yeah based on the shape and hearing that noise of like the squeal <laughs> line as it <laughs> is that the sound that the aquatic insect is making as it sucks to its death yeah 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 <laughs> oh man um you know well so there you go i just think it's crazy the diversity of tactics that these plants have all to combat the same problem of needing to get these nutrients it's i don't know they're fascinating i do want to before we wrap up real quick sidebar mention murderous plants (laughs) 
as well. Because this was a thing that as actually like a separate thing from as carnivorous. A separate be well, yes. It's so the term is kind of used or can be used to differentiate plants from true carnivorous plants. This only came up very uh sort of sparsely. So I don't know how widely I don't know that this is a very widely used thing in the scientific community, but what I did think was interesting is there had to be a definition for carnivorous plants because there are other plants that will kill bugs, but it's more a a um an accident sort of if you will. They're not intended. It's more of a of a defense than they're not doing yeah. it to digest and eat the bugs. So in some places I did see that termed murderous plants, pseudocarnivorous plants was another term that Listen, could be if used. it's self-defense, it's voluntary manslaughter. <laughs> right? Murder is a harsh right? term. <laughs> um but so just know that that is is a thing that at least in some circles exists out there to be considered carnivorous this was from another paper that i found a plant must be able to absorb nutrients from dead bodies adjacent to its surfaces <laughs> how the definition was written obtain some advantage in growth or reproduction and have unequivocal adaptations for active prey attraction capture and digestion. You need those things to truly be a carnivorous plant. So I think that first one was the sticking point for some of these other plants that were thought to maybe be carnivorous, but were ultimately deemed, okay, you're not really carnivorous, even though, yes, you have these adaptations that are going to kill these things, but you're not actually using what you've killed. So therefore, you are not a true carnivorous plant. Maybe we should call you murderous plants. Oh man. So plants are fascinating. That's that's what I have to say about that. Eating insects or other organisms is just a really amazing way that some of these plants live their lives. So don't sleep on plants, folks. Don't sleep on plants. I think this is a really good gateway of reframing how we conceptualize plants and our relationship to them and like who constitutes a character within a habitat and ecosystem like we draw in all of the trees and bushes as the background objects that that really discounts the active ways that these wild things have evolved into an area and and have their own needs to survive and Mm -hmm. will sometimes actively do that. And so this is, I think, just a way that we can easily conceptualize it because we also consume things in a similar way. But like you mentioned earlier, they also talk to each other Mm -hmm. and they will put out defenses for themselves. They have these adaptations in a similar way that animals do. We just often just think about them as like existing in their own way rather than being a more active participant in the ecosystem so yeah i hope this will be a good first step we're not going to stop here obviously there will be more to come with plants and diving into some of those other adaptations non-carnivorous plants are amazing too but this particular adaptation i think is just a really fascinating one and a cool one to get started with so thanks for chatting casey stick around everybody and we will wrap up in a moment
All right. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for listening to our discussion on carnivorous plants. I'm really sad that I didn't work in a more substantial Little Shop of Horrors reference in that entire episode. I know we mentioned it, obviously, but I feel like it should have come up more. There are no carnivorous plants that eat people, by the way. just That is the first thing if you Google, are there <laughs> carnivorous <laughs> plants? It says that eat people. Is I it was, really? Yes. I was just Googling it because I wanted to know if there were any near me. <laughs> any not, carnivorous plants in general, not in general human, near me, not yeah, one that not eat people. I, I was aware plants. that like rats yes. are like the biggest thing. <laughs> um, yes. The Casey's doing her homework right now as we speak. That was going to be your challenge for the week was to check and see if Boy, you ladies. have any carnivorous plants in your area. I know I was reading that a lot of them can be found in the southeastern United States. So I'm excited to check and see which ones I have near me. I hope to maybe eventually sometime in my life get to have my nature time again and see if I can find any. I think that would be fun to see some carnivorous plants in the wild. So take that as your bonus challenge if you want if you know a place where you can go and see some carnivorous plants but yeah take a look see like we said they are everywhere except Antarctica so take a look and see what kind of carnivorous plants are found near you I'll also tag on there Casey since we, we talked about selling being able to buy carnivorous plants as well just be responsible with that too like we said Venus flytraps really popular classified as vulnerable so just like we would talk about responsible pet ownership and making sure you know where you get your pets from, know where you get your plants from too, and make sure you're getting them sourced. Yeah. And if you're looking for them out in the wild, never take them out of the wild. Yes. Yeah. That's worth saying is to make sure that if you, if you do go out and visit your local carnivorous plants, make sure that you observe, take photos, leave them where they're at. All right, Casey, thanks for chatting with me this week. As always, folks, if you want to get in touch with us, you know how to do it. You can find us everywhere. We're on Facebook, A Little Greener Podcast, whatever that social media platform is called. We're on Instagram at A Little Greener Pod. We're on Twitter at A Greener Podcast. You can email us at a little greener podcast at gmail.com. You can also find our newer episodes up on youtube if you prefer to have captions if it's easier for you to watch them that way thanks for doing this one sarah it was fun i've learned some stuff i hope you guys learned some stuff i thought about plants in a new way hopefully no no nightmares about drowning in pitcher plants tonight someone send us your short story that you write inspired by these amazing plants and the horror dreams that you end up having (laughs) all right guys thanks so much for listening and we'll talk to you next week for another episode of a little greener bye